When you're sitting in the theater, you see in plain text based on true events. That always unsettles just a little bit. I mean, before the movie even starts, you already know that like... This really happened. Yeah, this really happened. He has just escalated his killing and just the whole theatrics of what he's doing. In this episode of The Brothers Grimm, Jeremy tells us the Grimm story behind the movie Scream. Yeah, so one thing you both know about me is I love movies. They are my obsession, and I know they're y'all's obsession too. I mean, we we thrive on when new movies are coming out. We love watching even B movies on Netflix and Hulu and you know, basically any streaming platform we can get our hands on. And I've honestly seen probably more movies than I can count. Um, which my wife calls an unhealthy addiction, but I like to think that it's a healthy hobby. So, um, but I just love losing myself inside of a story. I love when a movie kind of just allows me to, to just escape inside of it and everything from comedy to action adventure. Cause I love, I love ridiculous action. I know you don't like it, Joey. <laughs> no, I don't. I hate ridiculous action. But movies. why? <laughs> why? I, I just, I don't know. Unnecessary action is dumb to me. So not a Fast and Furious fan. No, Fast and Furious is so stupid. Dude, but you love know those movies. It's fun. I also don't like movies like The Expendables or Red. I just I cannot stand that kind of action. Weak man, weak. What's what's the Jason Statham movies? Uh, the Transporter, terrible, unbelievable. But I think the ones I love are the ones that leave me checking the backseat of my car every time I get in. You know, it's the ones that you see and you walk out of the theater and they just creeped you out just a little too much. And now you're kind of unsure. So, funny story, probably eight or nine years ago, uh, Joey and I uh, decided to go see Paranormal Activity 2 uh, in the theater. I'm really excited because the first one was awesome. Uh, and so we were excited to see this one in the theater. And so we're there and I, I can already feel my heart starting to race because I get real scared real easy. I love to be scared, but I don't like to always see what's scaring me. And so, and I knew Paranormal Activity, the first one, you never see what's haunting them. Let me preface this by saying I had to convince you to go with me. I know. I didn't want to go to see it again. I saw the first one by myself at the 11 p.m. showing, and I didn't want to go by myself again. So I convinced you to go with me. I don't think you had seen the first one at that time. I don't think so. I think... I I knew what it was about, but I hadn't seen right. it. And we went and saw like a, it was like a. Oh yeah. I made you go to the late showing with me. It, it was, was a late. It one. was like a, another 11 PM showing. Yeah. And so, so it was already late at night. I was already freaking out and the movie starts and I, I'm already, I can feel myself already getting scared. And I'm pretty sure that I watched about 90% of the movie with my hands over my eyes, peering through my fingers, just jumping at ridiculous. I was embarrassed. So there's a theme of you covering your eyes, I'm seeing, in scary yes. movies. I do. I, I love to be scared, but I do not like to see what's scaring me. Which you never actually see what's... See, but I hadn't seen the first one, so I didn't know. <laughs> Anyways, I love scary movies, but I love the ones that are based on true stories. You know, inside of that biopic genre, there's that subgenre sub that just captivates me. And and it's when you're sitting in the theater 
And all of a sudden, you see in plain text in the beginning credits of the film, based on true events or based on a true story. Yeah, or maybe you know the one going in. That always unsettles just a little bit. I mean, before the movie even starts, you already know that, like, wow, something this, something, this really happened. Yeah, this really happened. You know, it's one thing if you're watching like Saving Mr. Banks and it says based on a true story because you know it's going to be about Disney, but all of a sudden you're going to see like <laughs> The Conjuring or something like Exorcism of Emily Rose, and you know it's it's based and rooted in reality, and all of a sudden you're like. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you just get really scared really quick and then it just kind of it just infests my mind. So I love those. Now, if you were a teenager like I was back in the late 90s, mid to late 90s really, uh, there was one movie that sticks out. Um and it didn't have based on a true story, it didn't have based on true events, it didn't have anything in front of it. But what it did was it reinvented and revitalized the slasher genre. In case you two don't know what I'm talking about, yeah, we weren't uh, we weren't teenagers in the, in the late '90s. No, I wasn't. I think I was like in middle school. I'm trying to think. So I moved to Atlanta when I was nine, and that was '99. So, so you were yeah elementary school. So young, Brian. I know. I'm, Love I'm a it. baby. So the movie Scream. What released in '96, written by Kevin Williamson, and directed by the late legendary horror icon Wes Craven. Scream centers around a knife-wielding maniac known as Ghostface who stalks and kills high school students in middle-class suburban. This is interesting because I didn't realize that Scream was based off of a true story. I just thought they were poking, poking fun at slasher movies. Yeah, I, I didn't know it was uh, about true events either. It was inspired by a true story, not based on one. So the, the story and the, the case that it was based off of, that it was inspired by, is the Gainesville Ripper, okay, who terrorized the college town of Gainesville, Florida during a three-day murderous rampage in the summer of 1990. When did this movie come out? Scream came out in 96. Oh, wow, they didn't waste any time. No, not at all. But while Scream provides plenty of slashing scenes, in the end, it's the story of Sidney and the masked killer, and it bears only a passing resemblance to that of Danny Rowling. Danny Rowling is the Gainesville killer. So, already I have questions. Sydney from Scream. Yes. Okay. Just so our audience knows, any spoilers for the movie Scream? There are spoilers, but they're later on in the episode, and I will give a spoiler alert before I say anything. Okay. Well, But it is also 2020, and if you have yet to see Scream... You're about 24 years old. I know, but somebody will get on to us for spoiling a movie. This is very true. You know, you know that we all, the three of us, hate spoiling movies for each other. Actually, I really enjoy spoiling them for Brian, but... Yeah, I'm, <laughs> always, I'm always late to the, to the party. When <laughs> Brian is always late. So, side note, as a Georgia fan, of course, it pains me to say anything or be sympathetic to anything about Gainesville because that's where the Gators live. Uh, and we are vicious rivals. But I'm going to put my animal instincts aside and tell this grim story because it deserves to be told. So Danny Rowling, we're going to look at his backstory. What kind of childhood did he have? Did it mold who he'd become? Did it play a part in the creation of a monster? Well, according to the book, The Making of a Serial Killer, the real story of the Gainesville murders, written by Sandra London and Danny Rowling himself, it states that Rowling endured the sort of horrendous childhood 
that made him ripe to emerge as a menace to society. Hmm. So we're going to unpack that a little bit, which should give us a better understanding of where he came from, mm-hmm. what kind of upbringing he had, and did it matter. So Danny was born in 1954 in Shreveport, Louisiana, to a 19-year-old mother named Claudia and a police officer named James, who was a decorated Korean War veteran, but possibly and potentially may have suffered some combination of post-traumatic stress and inherent mental illness. The dad did. The dad did. So kind of unclear about that. Didn't find a lot of research about the dad's mental state post-war. But he, we, we did know he was temperamental, controlling, and violent. He often fought with his wife and heaped verbal abuse on Danny and his younger brother, Kevin, resorting to physical attacks as the boys got older. So Rowling turned to art and music for solace. His Christmas gift of a guitar at 15 was his happiest moment. But he also recalled these early years as a time when he started developing multiple personalities as a defense from the nightmare reality around him, with attempts at suicide failing to bring any sort of escape or reprieve. And this was his dad? No, this was this him was that him. was developing these personalities. How old was he when he started developing them? Around 15. Oh, wow. That's so young to like already be having these, these uh, thoughts and feelings. I feel like all those serial killers, though, they like... Develops while they're young. Yeah, it develops around they're like 15, 16 years old. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. So I want to stop here, and I want to unpack this idea that his environment and his childhood had a direct cause of his actions later in life. I see. It's hard to say because on the one hand, I don't really – I believe that you are responsible for your actions and that nobody nobody forces you to to become a murderer. Sure. True. I agree. I you know, I've never had anything kind of anything sort of like this happen to me during my life, but I could see how your upbringing and things that have happened, especially if your dad is having issues, mental issues, that over time you there's a culture that is kind of comes along with that that then changes because everybody's culture, how we're raised and how we grow up, is so different. Mm-hmm. See, so, yeah, I mean, Danny was tortured as a child. But just like many of those serving time in America's prisons, he was physically and psychologically tortured. He had an unfortunate childhood. There's no, there's no disputing that. However, not everyone who experiences what he did ends up being labeled a serial killer. Right. It's a choice. So all I'm saying is that you can't discount his childhood for being a major influencer. You can't discount that. But we can't be so naive to assume that if he had had a loving and caring father, that he wouldn't have murdered those students in 1990. This feels presumptuous. I don't know about that, though. If, I mean, I kind of feel like a serial killer has to have some some lack of moral compass or some lack of, maybe they have a, a maybe they're psychopaths or, you know, yeah. maybe, they, maybe they have no emotion or empathy. There has to be something missing. It can't just be. It can't just be a product of of culture or product of being raised. There has to be something else missing. Yeah, that product of their it. environment or something can't isn't the only factor there. I, I mean, it could be like a imbalance of chemicals in their brain. It could be something along those lines. So Danny was kicked out of the Air Force in 1972 after getting busted for drug possession. 
and he went to live with his grandfather and for a time found some stability through his church. He married a woman named Omather Halco. Her name was Omather Halco. That is a unique name. With whom he had a daughter, but eventually he drove her away after exacting the same sort of abuse on her that had been prevalent in his own childhood. So already harboring a habit of voyeurism and plagued by disturbing visions, Rowling took a turn for the worse after the divorce. So, and, and then, and now he's getting divorced. Yes, yeah, so he drove he drove his wife and his child away, okay. basically by abusing them in the same way he okay. was. And, and on top of that, he's now having voyeuristic tendencies and... Disturbing visions. What kind of visions? Did it talk about the it type of visions It didn't describe the visions, but I assume it has something to do with the multiple personalities battling around in his head. Yeah, I can imagine. Couldn't it also be... Um that like he's just enjoying like seeing the pain or distress from somebody else very potentially and it could have warped his view because that's the only kind of love quote unquote that he received Hmm. so interesting so took a turn for the worst he ended up raping a woman resembling his ex-wife and embarked on several armed robberies throughout the south ultimately leading to his incarceration in jackson georgia in 1979 the armed robberies seem a little surprising considering I mean, theft never really came up in his history. What, why, is he, why is he robbing people? I thought so, too. I thought that it was weird that all of a sudden he just started robbing people. Mm-hmm. Um, not, just, not just robbing people, but at gunpoint yeah. or wielding a weapon. Yeah. I mean, it could be a, um, you know, like a stair step into getting, getting up to actually killing people. Mm. Very possible. Yeah, possible. Make him feel powerful. So the 1980s brought more of the same for Rowling. He was in and out of jail in Alabama and Mississippi for armed robbery. His time between stints in jail was spent traveling the country, stealing, and occasionally forcing himself on women. Hmm. Just just rape, though. Did, did he ever murder these women? No, no, not yet. Okay. So back in Shreveport, 1989, Rowling was fired from his job at a restaurant, and that same night he broke into a home to murder 24-year-old Julie Grissom, her 8-year-old nephew, Sean, and her 55-year-old father, Tom. Echoing his later killings, Julie was found with bite marks and her body arranged with her legs spread on the bed. So, was he breaking in to to steal? Or was he, do we know if his intention was to go in to actually kill these people? I believe his intention was to kill them. Okay. To exact some sort of reprieve from how he felt about being fired. Clearly, anger issues abound. So this clear, there's a stair step of him increasing his crimes that he's committed, Mm -hmm. and it seems like something triggers in him, and that's why he does these. You said this book was by him too, right? Yes, and by Sandra London, who later, uh, or who was his fiance at the time. Oh. Does he ever talk about why, why he picked that family? I think he identified well. The, so the age of the girl matches up with his age discrimination for the Gainesville murders. Following May, Rowling got into one final argument with his father. This time, he pulled a gun and shot James in the stomach and head. His father survived but lost the use of his eye and ear. Danny then fled to Florida, eventually arriving in Gainesville. Now that we've established his backstory, let's move on to what he's infamously known for, and that is the Gainesville murders. In 1990, he set up a campsite in a wooded area behind the University of Florida. And it was there, Rowling embarked on his murder spree 
as students began the fall semester. On August 24th, he slipped into the home of Florida freshman Christina Powell and Sonia Larson and brutally stabbed and raped both students. The following day, he made Santa Fe Community College student Krista Hoyt his next victim, leaving behind her severed head on a shelf to face her body propped up on the bed. He has just escalated his his motives and his killing and just the whole theatrics of of what he's doing. Theatrics is a good word. The man took a severed head and pointed it at the body. Yeah. That's a little messed up. This is so strange. And and what was his reasoning behind this? Was there one? Because he, he didn't he get never fired gave again. any reasons for doing anything. On August 27th, the killer surfaced again at the home of two 23-year-old Florida students, Miguel Tabata and Tracy Pauls. So I have a quick question. My man is just like camping behind the college, but nobody has decided to check out that. Well, he's in a wooded area, area behind. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know what the police were doing. I feel exactly. like you know the radius of of where the killings took place. You should be able to stumble upon a a campsite and ask this man what he's doing there. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with Gainesville or the campus I'm not down either. there, but like I don't know like if he was like in the woods, I don't know where these woods were, but I mean, I guess it could be possible where he was hidden hidden well enough in the woods that nobody could find him. Depends on how far back in the woods he was and how well he covered his tracks. And h- how long of a span was this? So this is over three days. Oh, wow. Three so, four days. So at this point, it had, the probably authorities weren't super aware of really what was going on. The men hadn't connected the murders yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe. A former high school player, Tabata, put up a fight before being overwhelmed. However, neither body was mutilated at the time. So he's breaking MO. You know, he mutilates some, doesn't mutilate others. Um, obviously rapes some doesn't rate the others. There's a lot of inconsistencies in what he does, which makes it seem more like it's just rage killings as opposed to premeditated, you know, thought out. Mm -hmm. So as Rowling skipped town, a local task force was assembled to calm a frantic community and find answers. Authorities soon zeroed in on a prime suspect, a University of Florida student who had briefly lived in the same complex as two of the victims and exhibited erratic behavior at one point being arrested for hitting his grandmother. It was soon revealed, though, that the student was battling acute manic depression, and with zero evidence connecting him to the murders, the task force was back to the drawing board. So Rowling is gone. He skipped town. The police are zeroing in on this guy, which just gives him the ability to just run free. But meanwhile, while they're zeroing in on this guy, Rowling finds himself in jail. Because in September, less than a month after the killings, Rowling robbed a Winn-Dixie grocery store at gunpoint in Ocala, Florida, and was arrested after crashing the getaway car. It wasn't until early the next year when authorities used a tooth extracted from Rowling to link him to the DNA evidence at the Gainesville crime scenes that he became the primary suspect. Oh, well. Now, I'm not, I'm not rooting for Rollins here, but come on, man. Don't knock over a Winn-Dixie and then crash your getaway car. Was it just because he needed money? He needed some financial support? I assume he, yeah, I assume he was robbing the Winn-Dixie for money. Or food. Yeah. Grocery store. That's why I was curious. 
already facing multiple life sentences for his various armed robberies, Rowling was formally charged with the murders of the five Gainesville students in June 1992, almost two years after the murders were committed. Wow. To me, it's just so hard to understand. And maybe I'm not supposed to. Maybe I'm not supposed to understand why somebody would just randomly start killing all these girls, these females. Maybe it was sexual in nature. Maybe it was driven by the sexual desire. Um, but just the increase in br- brutality that he that he did, like committing these murders, it's just so hard to understand. Yeah, it seemed to escalate very quickly uh, from... From robbing somebody at gunpoint to now, you know, raping and murdering these women. Chopping heads off. And yeah. So around this time, Rowling began corresponding with journalist Sandra London, uh, who later became his fiance and helped him put together the book, uh, The Making of a Serial Killer. So they wrote the book together as a semi-autobiographical, I guess an autobiographical. He was in jail at the time though, right? Yes. This isn't any relation to the Netflix series making a murderer or making a serial killer or anything like no, that? No, it's completely separate. In February 1994, just before the start of his trial, Rowling abruptly changed his plea from not guilty to guilty. To determine the sentence, jurors listened to testimony from his mother, who recounted the abuse the defendant had received at the hands of his father, and from a psychiatrist who described an alternate personality of Rowling's named Gemini, who drove him to his sadistic arts. So while in prison, he makes the decision, I'm going to plead guilty insanity. He doesn't get off with insanity plea, does he? Man, it's a good play. It's a good play for the lawyers if, if you know, to try and do that. Avoid the death penalty uh, by pleading insanity. Yep. Two other psychiatrists also testified that a severe personality disorder was in play, but stated their belief that Rowling understood the magnitude of his crimes. The jury unanimously found Rowling guilty of first-degree murder on all five counts in late March 1994, and a month later he was sentenced to death. So whenever you plead guilty, even though it's for reasons of insanity, does it still go to a jury trial? Because at that point, there's no need for the jury if you've, um, at least my understanding, I could be way off, could but. It depends on what the prosecutor decides to do. If he decides to accept your plea of if, if he decides to accept your plea of guilt and then create a plea bargain, then it doesn't have to go to trial because you avoid all of that. But right, because at that point you said, okay, yeah, I'm guilty. They've accepted. Now it's just sentencing at that point. And I think it's because his guilty plea changed after the trial had already started. And maybe the prosecutor, maybe they wanted the death penalty. Maybe they wanted to push it farther. And not just let him get off with a plea deal or some, some sort of, you know, bogus thing like that. So on August 25th, 2006, after exhausting all of his appeals, Rowling faced execution at a Florida state prison. And in his final moments, he regaled the 47 people crammed into the witness room with one of his songs that apparently he wrote. A religious hymn with the refrain, None greater than thee, O Lord, none greater than thee. His microphone was then cut off, ending a life story as twisted as any that could appear on the big screen. I'm going to need to hear this audio recording. Yeah, I'd like to hear it as well. <laughs> no, no doubt. I don't, even know if, I don't even know if they record that kind of stuff. In my head. In an execution chamber. Look, he was just a master of everything. He apparently also was a, was a uh, musical artist. Wrote hymns. Yeah. 
So obviously there are stark differences between the true story of the Gainesville Ripper and Scream. No, but you could definitely connect the dots of the takes place on a, on a school campus, uh, small town, kind of rocked by a killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he he could have been spying on these girls, spying on these women. You know, he could have been watching them and, you know, and that could be where you get your scream from. I mean, because I honestly didn't even realize the scream was inspired by anything. I assumed it was original or at least as original as Hollywood gets. Right. Um, I mean, Scream is pretty, it's a pretty good as a movie. It's not my favorite slasher movie, but maybe it's because I didn't really like the killer too much. I don't know. If if they had gone closer to the source material, like if they had told this Gainesville Ripper story a little closer, I think I would have been more, uh, for lack of a better term, entertained by it. Yeah, I'm always curious why most scary movies, they don't do a background story on the killer. You know what I mean? Like, where does this person come from? There's not a ton of this. Yeah, there's sure there's some. Well, Scream did it a little bit, but the reveal didn't come until almost the end of the movie. And spoiler alert, like I said earlier in the episode, you know, the motive for Ghostface and Scream is revenge on Sydney for her less than ladylike, for the less than ladylike behavior of her mother, uh, which ultimately led to the killer's parents getting divorced. And then you look at Rowling's motive, which honestly, I think the three of us can agree there doesn't appear to be a clear motive for anything that he does apart from the fact that his Gemini personality told him to do it. If that is factual, like if he actually had this other exactly. personality. But he suffered from uh, a terrible childhood, and he himself was divorced and pushed his, his family away. So I could see the similarities in the killer's motives and Ghostface's murders, uh, motives as well. Yeah, so when you take a step back, there isn't all that much to connect the two. Apart from Kevin Williamson simply becoming engrossed by the story, which led him to pen one of the most pivotal horror movies in recent memory. So there you have it. The grim story that inspired the movie Scream and all of the sequels that followed. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, that was, it's very interesting to, to see where some movies kind of get their plot or their idea from. Um, yeah, personally, I like the ones that you don't automatically know right off the bat that they're inspired. I like the ones that are kind of like, for instance, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre was indirectly influenced by Ed Gein. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, movies that are not solely, you know, based, but they're more inspired. And then through that inspiration, the writer comes up with a story that is grounded in reality, but kind of you know, reaches this upper echelon of a completely different plot and dynamic. Yeah. I think I, typ- I typically tend to uh, lean towards movies that are uh, fact for fact similar to the or the original story because like we've kind of discussed throughout this entire series so far, you know, the, the, the real story, you know, the truth can be scar- scarier than the fiction sometimes. And uh, I, I, you know the only the only points that you could really connect are are school campus and and a killer. Yeah, yeah. Because even the age of the students doesn't match. Because Scream is high school and right. Mm-hmm. You know, Rolling was college. So, but I can't see you probably draw more of an audience thinking about your your teenagers. You know, running around a, a hometown somewhere. And somebody comes in and starts terrorizing the hometown. 
you know, it's a great movie for what it is. And uh, it, it just becomes a little bit cooler when you hear about the, the story that kind of inspired it. Yeah, it does. I like that. It's great. This episode was written by Jeremy Thompson with discussion from Joey Thompson and Brian McIntyre and was recorded at Starscream Studio. Grayson over at Starscream is an incredible producer and engineer, so be sure to visit starscreamstudio.com for all your tracking and recording needs. Additional audio support by Will Compton and original music composed by Nick McClure. Be sure to subscribe, and when you do, drop a line in the comments and say hi. We want to hear your grim stories too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.